Let's open our Bibles now, though, to James chapter 1. We are continuing on. It feels like a long time since we have been together, uh, having had to miss our time of corporate worship last week because of the weather. So it is so good, so good to be together and so good to open up this, uh, this wonderful letter from our brother James again together. We are going to be picking up in verse 22. And so as you are able, let's stand together once more in honor of the word of the Lord. Again, we don't do this out of empty ritual. We do this to remind ourselves of where the authority lies in the church, and that is in the living word of God. So hear now the word of the Lord from James chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. We thank you, Lord, for this pure and good and perfect gift that you have given to us, that by your spirit working through your word, you have called us from death to life, from darkness into your marvelous light. And I pray, Lord, this morning, by that same spirit, through that same word, that you would accomplish all of your good purposes in us. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we have said as we have looked at this letter from James, James is one of those guys who doesn't seem to have the appropriate boundaries that we think good, polite uh, people should have. James is one of those house guests who, who comes to your house and he's not content to stay in your kitchen and in your living room. He's opening doors. He's going through your drawers. He's going in the rooms you didn't invite him to go into. He, he is examining every room in, in our house, in our lives. And he uncovers things that are challenging for us and confront us. And that's no different this morning as we come to this text. Chad Walsh, the American poet and theologian of the early 1900s, said this. Millions of Christians live in a sentimental haze of vague piety with soft organ music trembling and the light stained glass windows. Were he to write this today, he might not talk about soft organ music and light coming through stained glass windows. He might be talking about big electric bands and pretty lights and moving messages. But he goes on and says this. Their religion is a pleasant thing, demanding little more than lip service to a few harmless platitudes. It is much safer from Satan's point of view to vaccinate a person with a mild case of Christianity so as to protect him from the real disease. He is spot on. Part of Satan's strategy is for the believer to come to the conclusion that obedience to God's commands in all of life is of secondary importance. He won't necessarily try to get you, believer, to to discredit the Bible. Perhaps he knows that for many Christians, they're too far down the road to to ever openly do that. He just wants you to disregard it. 
He's content for you to learn it as long as you don't live it. He's even satisfied if a Christian believes God's word as long as they don't obey God's word. And fundamental to the Christian life is the necessity of obedience. The way that we learn obedience is through God's word. God's word teaches us what God is like, what God requires of us. Therefore, we must be students of the word. We must learn it. We must listen to it. We must read it. We must be studying it and memorizing it and meditating on it. And and in all of these ways that we take in the word, we come to know our God. We come to know what he is like and what it is that he requires of us. But, But there's a danger. There's a danger that in all the ways we hear God's word, because we have such easy access to it, in our day. Every single one of us in our pocket or in our purse at any moment during the day has got 24-7 access to the word of God. This is unheard of in any other era of history. The access that we have and what a blessing it is. But with all of these ways that we have to hear the word of the Lord, there's a danger that we would neglect it. That we would fail to act on it. That's the concern James has here in our passages. As he writes this letter to our first century brothers and sisters, James is concerned that they might be hearers and not doers. So in our passage today, James identifies a weakness that really is common to all of us. We hear the word and we fail to act on it. When we fail to act on God's word, we miss the blessings from God that come with obedience. It is a major thing to fail to act on the word of God that you have received. And so we need to think carefully this morning about what James has written to us. And we'll look really at this, at this brief passage in three parts. The command, the warning, and the blessing. First we see the command in verse 22. Look there with me again. But be doers of the word. And not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We are to be doers of the word. What does it mean to be a doer of the word? Very simply, it means that we consistently obey God's commands. That we live according to the truths of the word of God. We we obey the commands of scripture and we live according to its truths. But notice it's not just that we are to do the word of God. We are to be doers. Be doers of the word. In other words, our our whole lives ought to be characterized by this on an ongoing basis. Continually characterized by obedience so that we can be called doers of the word. It's one thing to occasionally follow God's word. It's one thing to occasionally to pick your moments when when it makes you feel the happiest to obey God's word. It's another thing, though, to be marked by a habitual obedience to God's word, a life of obedience. We're to be marked by obedience, a radical whole life, consistent day in and day out, obedience to God's word, consistently following it such that it typifies our life. The verb here is be continual doers of God's word. So we're called to something much more than just, than just momentary obedience or, or picking our spots and picking those, those commands of God that we like 
and doing those things. We're to be marked by habitual obedience, a life of obedience. There's nothing more basic than that in the Christian life. Obedience. Obedience, living according to God's word, is the most basic foundational building block of the Christian life. It is the only proper response to the word of God. The only proper response to the God who made all things and rules over all things, actually revealing himself to us, revealing what he desires of us, there's only one right response to that, and that is to do it, to obey it, to follow it, to be guided by it, to heed it, to live by it. In fact, the Apostle John says, it's only those who do this. It's only those whose lives are characterized by obedience to God. It is only they who are true believers. He says this in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 verse 3, he says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. If we reverse that sentence, it might make a little more sense to us. If we keep his commandments, by this, we know that we've come to know Christ. That's who knows Christ, those who keep his commandments. He goes on in in verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. True believers are characterized by obedience to God. Obedience marks their lives. That's why John says, if we keep his commandments, then we know that we have truly come to know Christ. Obedience gives evidence of true saving faith. John Calvin in his commentary on James says this, a doer of the word testifies by his life that he really believes. That's what James is saying. That's what John is saying. Obedience gives evidence that saving faith has occurred in you. Now, do believers perfectly obey God? All we have to do is look at our own lives and say, no, none of us do. None of us do. The best of men are still just men. None of us obey God perfectly. Of course that's not the case. It's not perfection that marks the believer. If that was the case, we would all be doomed. It's not perfection that marks the believer. It is the consistent direction towards obedience that demonstrates to saving faith. It's not that we get it all perfect all the time. It's that this is the direction of our lives. And Christian, it's easy for us to be hearers of the word only. And to hear these strong statements from our brother James, to, to hear these incredibly strong and offensive statements from our brother John, and then not examine our own lives in light of them. So the question is, what about you? What about you? Is obedience to God the driving passion of your life? Does, does it motivate you? Or do you need some other motivation? Some other motivation than just obeying God who made you? And who rules over all? When you find yourself up against temptation, do you ever think in that moment, what would God have me do in this situation? What would God command me to do in this moment? Is living in view of your Father in heaven a compelling motivation in your life? Because if we're to believe the words of Scripture, true children of God desire to obey their Father in heaven. 
That's what marks the true children of God. They care about what, the, what, what God, their Father in heaven, has commanded them to do. Their desire to please Him. Even though at times they fail. Even though at times they fail at pleasing Him is the desire of their heart to please Him. How, how did the Apostle Paul respond when he sinned and disobeyed God? He was not nonchalant about it. He was not cavalier about it. He wasn't apathetic. He didn't say, oh, well, nobody's perfect. God will forgive me. It's God's job to forgive me. We all mess up. Not a big deal. Well, that's not how Paul approached it at all. What does he say in in Romans chapter 7, verse 24? Wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul hated that he sinned. He didn't take it lightly. He wasn't nonchalant about it. He was grieved that he had disobeyed his Father in heaven. He ached. He was in anguish that he had followed the path of his flesh instead of the good path that that God, our gracious Father, has laid out for us in his word. And in desperation, what did he do? He looked to Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christ as his only hope. Christ as his only prayer for deliverance. Christ as his his only hope for obedience. He knew he needed divine help to be freed from this sinful flesh. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But he didn't take it lightly. It grieved him. Obedience to his heavenly father compelled him. He he was compelled by obeying his father. True believers, genuine Christians care about obedience. Maturity in Christ is is marked by an increasing desire to do the will of God. to, To fight against the flesh and its sinful desires in order to do what God has commanded. And so genuine faith is a doing faith. Genuine faith is an acting faith. It's a a faith that works. True saving faith always bears fruit. The, The tree of saving faith is a certain kind of tree, and it grows a certain kind of fruit. And that fruit is the fruit of obedience. As we considered two weeks ago, Remember the parable of the soils. One one seed spread over four different kinds of soils. And and of the four, only one received the seed and produced grain. That was the soil we saw of saving belief, and it produced a harvest. That's what true belief does. It's what genuine saving faith does. It produces a harvest of righteousness. And again, we need to be clear about this. We are not saved by our good works. We are not saved through the means of our obedience. We are not saved by works, but we are saved unto good works. Works of obedience. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so no man can boast. So he gives us a classic statement here in Ephesians 2 that salvation does not come by works, not in any way. 
It only comes by grace through faith. If we contribute in any way to our salvation through our obedience and our good works, then there is a little room for man to boast. And Paul says, boasting has been excluded. Not a result of works, so that no man can boast. But what does he say in the very next verse? For, we see that word for, we know it means, I'm about to explain why what I just said is true. Here's why you've been saved. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. To walk in them, these good works that we were created for, these good works that God has prepared in advance, to walk in them is just another way of talking about obedience. You have been saved to obey, and in obeying, to produce an abundance of good works for the glory of God. That's, Christian, why God has saved you. That's why he has redeemed you. That is why you're still alive on this earth. Otherwise, at the moment of your conversion, just to keep it all safe, God would zap you straight into his presence in heaven, in glory. No, you're, you, you, you have been saved and you are here to produce a harvest of good works in your obedience to Christ. And so Christians, we must strive to live as we've been called. We've been called to faithfully obey God, and therefore we must strive to be doers of the word. That's not work salvation. That's the result of salvation. That's not legalism. It's just the clear teaching of Scripture. It is what we have been called to do. The problem is, though, we are often hearers only. James says we must be doers of the word and not hearers only. To be a hearer is not enough. Hearing the word must lead to godly action, not ungodly inaction. The word James uses here is an interesting word, this word hearer. It's used in Greek literature to refer to a student who attended the lectures of a teacher, but was not a committed follower of that teacher. In the college setting, we call them auditors. Perhaps you've heard of auditing a class. It means that, that you can come to the lectures and you can, you can hear everything that's taught just like all the other students do, but you have no further commitment beyond that. You, you, you don't get graded. You don't have to study outside of class if you don't want to. You don't have to take tests. You don't have to write papers. You've got the benefit of hearing the lecture, but you're not held accountable for what you hear. That's the word that James uses here, an auditor. The truth is, many who fill seats on Sunday mornings in churches are merely auditors of the Word of God. They've come to hear a message. They've come to hear a sermon, but they remain unchanged. They, they read their Bible, perhaps, but they don't apply it to their lives. They are hearers only. They are auditors. The problem is not that they haven't heard. They have heard. The problem is they haven't practiced And so active listening is the beginning. We must actively listen, but we must also be actively obedient to what we have heard. We must not be passive hearers, as we saw two weeks ago in verses 19 through 21. We we must receive the word with the will to obey it, with the will to be guided by it. Are you an auditor of God's word? Are you a hearer only? We all, we all know the expression, in one ear and out the other. Does that describe 
your typical experience on a Sunday morning as you walk out those doors and never again give thought to anything that was said as you gathered together with God's people to hear his word proclaimed? Does that describe you in respect to God's word? Scripture warns about that. Scripture warns about hearing God's word without obeying it. Jesus told a parable making this very point in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Two two responses to hearing the words of Christ and two very different Results. The wise man hears the words of Christ and then does them. And when, when judgment comes, he stands. The fool hears the words of Christ and does not do them. And he falls when judgment comes. God's word calls us to, to repentance and trust in Christ alone for salvation. This is the gospel. And the gospel is good news, yes, but it is good news that must be obeyed. It must be obeyed. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, God is coming to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is coming to inflict vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter 4 verse 17. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Elsewhere Paul says in Romans chapter 2 verse 8. Speaking about the gospel. Those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth. That is do not obey the gospel. But obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So the gospel is a message of good news that must be heard and it must be rightly responded to. It must be obeyed. To hear the gospel and not believe, to hear the gospel and not renounce your sin and bow the knee before Christ is disobedience to God. And that disobedience, Scripture is repeatedly clear, will be punished. That's the point of the parable that Jesus tells about wise and foolish builders. And James says that the one who hears God's word but remains a hearer only is self-deceived. Look again at verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. To be self-deceived is, is to be blinded to the reality of your true spiritual condition. Same word is used in Colossians 2 verse 4 to describe spiritual delusion. That's what self-deception is. Self-deception is a kind of spiritual delusion. It's to have a false belief about, about who you really are. There's no deception that's more dangerous than that. 
No deception is more dangerous than self-deception. The most perilous deception is to believe that you are saved when you're really not. Just because you earnestly believe that you are saved doesn't mean that you really are. It is the most dangerous, dangerous thing to be spiritually deluded about who you really are. To be spiritually deceived, self-deceived. Again in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned that in the last days, many will claim a relationship with him, but he will prove them wrong. He goes on in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Feel the weight of what he's saying there. The horror, the utter horror of that moment. People will meet Christ, Jesus says. People will meet Christ expecting to be received by him with open arms in salvation. They will take their last breath on this earth, expecting in the next moment to be welcomed into glory with song. And instead, they will be met with judgment because they're self-deceived. That is the ultimate. The ultimate self-deception. So the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Well, certainly the first test is whether you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. Christ saves through faith and not through works. Do you have faith in him? Are you trusting in him? Are you relying, depending on him alone for your salvation? Or are you depending on your goodness, your good intentions and your good works to save you instead? Christ saves through faith alone. But along with that test of true, genuine faith in Christ, along with that test is the second test of hearing and obeying the word. Since those who are saved, all of them, will produce the fruit of obedience, then another test of genuine faith is whether you are a doer of the word or a hearer only. If you persist in willful disobedience, if your life is marked by this, it demonstrates that you don't truly belong to Christ. John MacArthur says, those who consistently disobey God's word give evidence that they are without his life in them. Those who consistently obey the word give evidence of the life of God in their souls. He says later, in the long run, how we behave is proof of our salvation or our lostness. Over time, conduct is always a reliable test of the inner person. He's absolutely right. That is exactly what James is saying. It's what the Apostle John said. It's what the Apostle Paul said. It's what the Apostle Peter said, as we have heard from each one of them this morning. So you can be self-deceived, friend, about the state of your own soul. 
But we who are saved can also be self-deceived about our level of maturity, about the state of our maturity. Are you truly mature? Are you truly godly? If you neglect to act on the teaching you have been taught, then you are not. Then you are not spiritually mature. And to think otherwise, James says, is delusional. It's, it's deception. You may know a lot. You may believe all the right doctrines. You may have been in church for an awfully long time. You may be full of zeal and goosebumps every time that you sing together with the church. Or when you listen to that particular music that you love to listen to. Whatever it is. But make no mistake. If you are not growing in obedience. If doing the word does not characterize your life. Again, not perfectly. But there's a direction in your life towards obedience. If that is not your life, then you are not spiritually mature. You are immature. That's why as believers we must take care. We must take care to live according to the word of God. To not be auditors. To to build our lives on the foundation of obedience to God's word. That's, That's the rock you build your life on. Obedience to Christ. And if we don't, then we will not stand against the trials and temptations of the world. We we will not grow in maturity. We will miss the blessings that God has for us in this life. James illustrates the foolishness of hearing without obeying with a warning in verses 23 and 24. See the warning here. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. I try to do that with a real mirror. It makes me feel better. The one who is self-deceived is is like this this man. Here's a man, James, James puts before us, who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. Now mirrors have changed a lot. Over the millennia, mirrors in James' day were not like our mirrors made of reflective glass like we're used to. They were made out of metal. It was flattened. It was highly polished. Today, we've got mirrors all over our homes. We use them throughout the day. But most of us would never walk past a mirror without at least taking a glance in it. That wasn't the case then. Mirrors were made of valuable metal, bronze, silver, and in the richest of households, gold. Because of that, they weren't necessarily everyday household objects. Not everybody could afford such things. So for many, looking in a mirror was a rare event. It was not a daily occurrence. You can imagine someone who didn't own a mirror seeing themselves in a mirror. Maybe for the first time, or at least the first time in a long time, and studying their own face carefully. So this is what I look like. Even for those who owned mirrors, you would have needed to study your face very carefully because there's only so much that polished metal can do in reflection. The reflection wouldn't be perfect. The the image would be relatively dim compared to our mirrors today. The Apostle Paul alludes to that very thing in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 when he, he compares our present circumstances with the age to come. And he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face 
to face. In other words, we, we will see with perfect clarity, but right now it's like looking in a mirror. It's a dim, fuzzy image. So in those, those days, you needed to study your face in the mirror. You needed to, as James says, look intently at your face in that polished metal. To look intently, this, this intense, focused attention, this studied gaze. A casual glance won't do. If you really wanted to see what you were like, you needed to look intently. You needed to study your face in that mirror. But this man in James' illustration does that. He stands there in front of this mirror just looking deeply, intently, studying his face in the mirror and immediately forgets what he looks like. Verse 24 says, he looks at himself and goes away at once, he forgets. What he was like. As soon as he stops looking in the mirror and goes away, his mind no longer retains with any clarity the image that he has seen. He forgets at once what he was like. The one who is just a hearer of the word and not a doer is exactly like this man. That's what James says. Unless you immediately act on what you have heard, you will neglect it. You will forget it. Unless you immediately take action on what God has spoken in his word, you will forget to do what God has said. Calvin again says, teaching that is heard but not received inwardly and acted upon avails nothing and soon vanishes away. And we could shake our heads at this man in James' illustration for going away in forgetfulness. Rather than pursuing whatever action the, the thought here in James's illustration is, you saw something in that mirror that needed attending to. And you forgot about it. You just walked away. We could laugh at such a man, but how often have we heard the word of God and done the same thing? We've all done it. We're just like him in our reading of scripture. In a, or as we hear the word of God preached... We hear something that is required of us. We've been convicted in some area. But before we take any action on it, before we take any action on what God and his word has commanded us to do, our minds become distracted with other things. The phone rings. That text message dings. The kids are awake. Church ends and we got to rush out to lunch. We don't have time to deal with this. We remember some task, and that task must be done. Oh, i got to clean the ceiling fan. I haven't cleaned it in eight years. It must be done at precisely this moment. Whatever it is that, that comes, we lay aside our Bibles and we go about our day with no reference to what we have read, with no reference to what we have heard. We have all done it. We are just like this man. We have been exactly like the man in James's illustration, looked into the mirror of God's word. It has revealed to us who we really are and what it is that we must do. And then in pursuit of far less important priorities, often trivialities. We've gone about our days and forgotten all that God has shown us in his word. Brothers and sisters, this must not be so. This must not be so in our lives. Not not just because of the warnings about disobedience, but even more so because there is great blessing in obedience. See the blessing he, he lays before us in verse 25. The one who looks into the perfect law. 
The law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. God's word is not just good advice. It's not just one of many valid points of view. James calls God's word the perfect law. The law of liberty. He calls it the law to emphasize it must actually be obeyed. This is not arbitrary. This is not random. This is not up for discussion. It must be obeyed and it is perfect, James says. It is complete. It is final. It is official. In his word, we find all that God requires of us. It is sufficient to teach us the way. Unlike a dim mirror, this word is without distortion. This word is without error regarding reality, regarding what it is that God wants to teach us, regarding what it is that's required of us. And James calls it, this is beautiful, the law of liberty. The law of liberty, because true freedom is found here. True, true freedom is only found in living according to the word of God. True freedom is not found in pursuing our own sinful desires. Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a what to sin? A slave. In pursuing your own fleshly desires, you are not free. You are in bondage. You are in slavery. True liberty is living according to God's perfect law. True liberty is doing what is right in God's sight. And the way we know what that is, is because he has revealed it to us in his word. Therefore, it's the law of liberty. We we can be free by following God's word. And so... If rather, James says, than forgetting what God has taught you in his word, you instead carefully consider what you have heard and then live in accordance with it, with perseverance. Which just means you continue in it. Then he says, you will be blessed. If you you take in this word, if you receive this word, if you carefully consider this word, and then you persist in living accordingly, You will be blessed. And that's not James' promise to you. That is God's promise to you. You'll be blessed. You'll be blessed in your obedience. Obedience to God always brings blessing. Obedience brings blessing. Always. It is always true. Now, it's not always a blessing that That we see some kind of tangible earthly riches perhaps. No, it is something far better. It is something far better. The blessing of divine favor. The blessing of approval from God. Obedience to God always brings the best blessing that there is. Eternal blessing. The promise of blessing for obedience is repeated throughout scripture. In fact, it is a theme of scripture. One of the major themes that runs through scripture is this. Obedience brings blessing from God. And disobedience brings judgment from God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 3. God promises Israel. Hear therefore O Israel and be careful to do them. That is the commands of God. That it may go well with you. That you may multiply greatly. As the Lord the God of your fathers has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. 
Okay, hear the word, be careful to do it, and if you do that, it will go well with you. What does that mean? It means blessing. Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, this book of the law, God's word, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Obedience. For, that's the motivation, then you will make your way prosperous. You will have good success. That's blessing. Joshua, do you, do you want your way to prosper? Do you want to have good success? Do you want to be blessed? Then take hold of this word, keep it in you, and be a doer of it. In Psalm 19, verse 11, David rejoices that in keeping God's command, there is great reward. That's blessing. Do you, do you want to be blessed by God? Obey his commands. Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, verse 28, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Keep it, do it, obey it. Blessing comes from obedience. And James, in our passage, tells us that the one who obeys God will be blessed in his doing. In the doing, in the, in the act of obedience, the blessing comes. It is in the, it's in the doing of it that the blessing comes. You'll find God's blessing when you put God's word into practice. This is meant, friends, to be a motivation to us. To be a motivation to obey. One of the reasons Christians obey God, we want to please our Father in heaven, yes, but God gives us even, even more motivation. God will bless you if you do. God will bless you if you obey. That's not selfishness. It's not wrong for us to desire this kind of blessing from God. It's wrong for us to demand in what ways he must bless us. It's not wrong for us, though, to take him at his word and to desire that spiritual blessing from him, favor from God, the, the delight of our Father in heaven. It is right for us to desire that. That is a holy motivation, and it is a, it is a holy motivation that God uses over and over again in his word. The commands of God are not arbitrary. The commands of God are not random. It's a stunning thing to notice that so very often he explicitly provides motivation for us. It would be enough. It would be enough for God to say, do my word because it's right and you don't need to know anything else. It would be enough for him to say, do my word because I'm God and I said so. In fact, all of us as parents have felt the rightness of that at some point with our kids when we get that little three-letter question that is asked so often, why? And we say to them, what? Because I'm your dad, and I said so. And you don't need anything else. God could do that. And you know what? Sometimes God does that. Sometimes God says, I don't think I need to explain anything to you. Book of Job. Book of Job's one big question, why? And God's answer is, because I'm God. Trust me. So often, though, like a loving father. We're not doing our best parenting if that's all we do with our kids, is it? You do what I said because I said so and that's it. And our kids are left thinking, 
Are the commands of mom and dad loving or arbitrary? Are they just their preferences? No, so often, what does a good parent do? What does a loving parent do? They provide motivation for obedience. We don't just show them what is right and what is wrong. We show them what's right about what's right. We show them the reward of obedience and the folly of disobedience. And and so often, as a loving father, God spells it out for us. He spells out loving motivation, and we are to grab hold of these motivations. We shouldn't be ashamed to say, yes, that motivates me. They're meant to propel you forward. They're meant to spur you on to obedience. And friend, God is telling you today, if you obey, he will bless you. You will be blessed by God. So would you like to be blessed by God? Then obey God. Keep his commandments. Live according to his word. Be doers of the word. Because in obedience to God, there is great and eternal, immeasurable even, blessing. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, your word does challenge us. It does confront us. It does hold a mirror up to us that we see ourselves clearly and we see how we fall short. Lord, thank you that with our brother Paul, we can say, though I'm a wretched man, unable to free myself from this body of death. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for your great salvation. Thank you for the righteousness of Christ. Lord, even as we are called to an active obedience to your commands, we look to Christ, the God-man, the one who, who took on flesh and, and faced every temptation where we have failed and, and lived in complete and perfect obedience, obeying the law perfectly. We look to the one whose righteousness is is accredited to us, that we stand before the judge of of all the universe, knowing, Lord, that we, we, we can only stand in the righteousness of Christ and not in our own merit. And we look to Christ and we are humbled and we rejoice in your great salvation. But we do pray, Lord, by that by that spirit who inspired these words and that spirit who you have sent to dwell within your people. Lord, that you would cause in us greater obedience, a greater hunger for obedience. Lord, that that we would take our sin more seriously. Lord, that we would take your holiness more seriously. Lord, that we would take the call to obedience more seriously. That you would produce in us, as you have promised, the good fruit of righteousness in keeping with salvation. I do pray, Lord, for any who hear my words this morning that are, they are that self-deceived man that James spoke of. They're self-deceived and they're deluded about their own spiritual state before you. They are lost and under judgment and condemnation and they feel like they're safe because they're trusting in the works of their own good intentions. I pray, Lord, that you would hold the mirror of your word before their face, cause them to see things as they truly are. And Lord, in in the weight of that, that by your spirit, you would lift their eyes to behold Christ and that they would run to him, that they would find in him salvation. They would find in him unlimited righteousness accredited to them. They would find in him the right standing with you that they so desire. 
Lord, for each one of us, I pray that you would cause us to walk in obedience and in righteousness out of the joy of your great salvation, out of love for you, that it would produce in us the good fruit of righteous living and bold witness. I pray, Lord, that much fruit would be born from this little church in this little town. Pray, Lord, that you be glorified in us and through us. For Christ's namesake, for your kingdom's sake, we pray. And for the eternal joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.